Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm recovering, buddy, but more importantly, and germane to the point, how the hell are you? I live to tell the tales. I've been looking forward to doing this all day, so just give me one second, okay? I'm with you. In three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Eric Bischoff here coming to you from the Mall of America, home of Turner Broadcasting's newest series, TNT Monday Nitro, along with my co-host, Conrad Thompson. Conrad, how the hell are you? Man, I'm good, dude. How are you? Good. Now let's let this thing fly. Well, let's get to it. I'm really excited to do this. It's such a historic moment for wrestling. If you haven't already, fire up that WWE Network. You're going to look for Nitro number one, September 4th, 1995. If you're not there just yet, go ahead and hit pause and catch us up. It's only 45 minutes and, uh, we're not going to do silly commentary here. We're going to talk about the ins and the outs and all the details that uh, we can fit in this episode. So check it out and we're going to hit play. now you of course want to let the old disclaimer run before that tells you what the television rating is. And then you're going to be ready to go at zero colon zero zero, right at the very beginning. And we're going to press play in three, two, one play. And you've told us about this open shot right there in Orlando with the projected images, the, uh, the fire, some really cool elements. When do you think you guys would have shot this? Of course, we're seeing it for the first first time in September. When do you think it was shot? Yeah, they probably started that about June and July. Craig Leathers and his team, Neil Pruitt, um, Woody Kearse, Annette Yothers all went down to Disney M- Disney MGM Studios and started putting this together. And that was one of the great things about you know Nitro is it gave us an opportunity to really update our look, our, our brand, uh, our graphics. I mean, we were really able to retool to the show in a way that we hadn't done since we uh, created new graphics and a new open for WCW Saturday Night probably three years earlier. And look at that handsome devil there. Of course, I'm talking about Mongo, not you. Ha ha. Of ha. course. <laughs> uh, so, hey, um, you, we're going to talk about Mall of America a lot, but what a cool visual it is to see the outside. I assume you guys used a helicopter there to shoot it. But then from above, sort of this multi level effect, it's a pretty cool, what would you call that? Like the atrium, I take it? Yeah, that's the main atrium in the, in the Mall of America. And, you know, to kind of set the stage, and, and, you know, I recognize that, you know, some people aren't able to watch along. So I want to make sure that we do a good job painting the picture here and, and visually as well as kind of the backstory. But, you know, if you go back in, because context is king, as we know, at this time in 1995, we, even though we, you know, Hulk Hogan had been there for a little while, You know, we had some momentum going in some respects. I still wasn't convinced that we were going to be able to put asses in seats uh, and sell tickets to a a television uh, taping, or in this case, a live show. So it was important that we find a location. And we're looking right now, for those of you that aren't watching along, we're looking at what they call a crane shot or a, a jib shot of a big sweeping kind of overview. And we used a wide angle lens on that particular camera, which made it look even bigger than it really was. Uh, we did that on a couple of our handhelds and on our jib camera to really kind of create the sense of space and depth in some of those wider shots. 
But it was important to me that we went to a venue where we were pretty certain we could get people to show up and it and it would have a cool look. This is kind of like a, a modern day Roman Coliseum if you're not able to watch along on the WWE network. So chat me up. Why was the um the right choice to start the very first nitro with Jushin Thunder Liger and Brian Pillman? It was consistent with a lot of the research that I had been doing and you know, the tip of the hat to Brad Siegel, the president of TNT, he was really adamant about doing research. Uh, you see people get their Hulk Hogan shirts on in the crowd, and uh, it's really well lit, which I liked. There's another reason I like this venue. But as far as opening up the show with these two guys, you know, we wanted fast-paced action. Again, I was making an effort to have a more international vibe, you know, to our brand and, and a and appear to be or perceived to be much more international uh, than we really were, in fairness. And this just made a lot of sense. I knew it would start off hot. I knew the hardcore wrestling fans would like this match, but I knew because it was going to be a fast-paced, kind of a high-altitude type match, um, the non-wrestling fan, which was made up a pretty good size of this audience, uh, the non-wrestling fan would be entertained by it too. So it just seemed to make a ton of sense. I do want to mention for everyone who is watching along with us that Eric and I are bringing you this show commercial free. So hopefully you're enjoying that. The only thing you're going to hear us plug is our Patreon and Starcast on fight and our stuff, but no other commercials today. We want to have you enjoy the action and sort of relive the moment here. Let's talk about the announcer decision, because I think a lot of people sort of forget that Tony Schiavone was not on this show. Instead, you opt for Mongo, Bobby Heenan, and yourself. Chat me up. Well, again, it's it's a brand new show. You know, it was a brand new format. It was it 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 had to feel and look different. Now, although I had a presence on WCW Saturday Night uh, off and on, um, and I think I probably did leading into this. I'm not I'm not sure. I can't remember. But you know, I knew what I wanted the show to be. And look, Tony, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll, I'll say it till the day I die. Uh, Tony was a better announcer than I was. There's no mistake in that. He had, the, he had a great voice. He, he could really paint a picture. Um, he, 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 he was very recognizable, to, especially to the Turner Broadcasting audience. But I wanted the show to feel differently. And Tony was pretty comfortable in his range and in the way he did things, and that's not a criticism. It's just a fact of life. Um, I wanted something a little different out of the show, and I felt because I knew it, I was more intimate with what I wanted out of the show than anybody I could possibly hire, and I had enough experience as an announcer to do a reasonably good job um, that I felt it would be better with me. And, and, of course, Mongo was brand new at it, and I felt like I could at least direct him a little bit, a little, possibly a little more easily than Tony might have, and Bobby was Bobby. You know, you you couldn't have found a better person, you know, other than Bobby to be in that spot. I think a lot of people just think about Mongo and they think about his days on the gridiron, but in reality, he had been doing a little radio and a little TV in his market, right? Yeah, he and he still is to this day, actually. Uh, but I didn't hire him really for his expertise. I mean, I hired him because. Again, as you've heard me say, when we've discussed these types of things, when I've used celebrities in the past, 
I knew it would get a lot of attention from media types. I knew Monday morning drive folks that were, you know, huge NFL fans uh, would would be talking about the fact that Steve Mongo McMichael is, you know, announcing wrestling. And that's advertising that I could not have afforded to buy at that time. So there was a tactical reason for it that probably outweighed the practical reason for it. That rhymed almost. It did. We're having tactical, a heck of a match tactical here. Tactical over practical. I could rap. Talk to me about just the presentation, because of course this nitro set is not nearly what it's going to become. You know, you have just regular blue mats and ring skirts, and you've got the blue and yellow turnbuckles and the blue post. This is not the nitro ring and set that we're familiar with. Did you already have those elements in the works here? Uh, and this was just the only way you could make it work in the mall of America. Talk to me about when that changeover really happened. Uh, the change started developing early on. We were looking at designs. We were looking at graphics packages. We were looking at a lot of different things that we wanted to do in the future, but keep in mind, we didn't get a long, you know, we didn't get a long, uh, lead time between the time, you know, Ted told me he wanted the show and the time we launched the show was a matter of months. And then, you know, the gestation period of a television production of this magnitude, that's pretty quick. It's a pretty fast turnaround. So we knew that we were going to grow into our brand a little bit, but we, we certainly could have put, couldn't put it all together here. And we also didn't know, again, context, we had no idea how it was going to do. We had no idea when we left Minneapolis, you know, when we left the Mall of America that we're looking at right now as Luger goes to the top rope, comes off the top, and Pillman meets him in midair with a dropkick. I love this stuff. Um, when we left the Mall of America – that night, I had no idea if we were going to bomb, if we were going to explode, or if we were going to land somewhere comfortably in the middle. So while we had been thinking about designs and graphics and packages and colors and all the, the fun stuff that goes along with launching a new broadcast, nobody knew how this thing was going to do. So we were not anxious to move too quickly either. Talk to me about um, you know, how you felt when the ratings came in. And I think a lot of people remember that this weekend you weren't running head to head. You were unopposed when the number comes in. Is it a sigh of relief? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I felt like a million pounds had, had come off my shoulders because nobody, I mean, when I say nobody knew uh, that's being kind, let me complete the sentence. When I say nobody knew if we'd succeed or not, that's a kind way of saying most people thought we were going to crash and burn. And I wasn't convinced. I mean, I knew we were going to try our hardest, um, probably like you and, and your team when you went into StarCast. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit of a parallel there. We had never done this before. You know, we had done live TV before. We had done the Clash of Champions before. We had done pay-per-views before. So the live television aspect of it was not new to us. But going um, prime time during the week, on TNT, yeah, that was brand new. And we had no idea how that audience, when I say that audience, I mean TNT's footprint, how, how they were going to react to this. So there was, when I say a sense of relief, I, I, I cannot emphasize what an understatement that is. Pillman with the win over Liger. Pillman looked good here. And by the way, I saw uh, Brian Pillman Jr. at StarCast uh, this week, and we talked for a while. And he's an interesting cat. Did you get a chance to catch up? What's your impression of him? 
Well, this is the second time I met him, and but it was the first time I talked to him at any you know great length. And we, I mean, we didn't sit you know, like for an hour or anything. It was in the you know atrium over by where Sirius Radio was. Um, we talked for you know I don't know 10, 15 minutes, and I think my impression this time, as well as the the first time I met him a couple man, a couple months ago, I, I like him. You know, I gave him my phone number and said, look, if you ever just want to chat and and just talk about you know, your father's career from my perspective and, and share some things that I haven't shared, you know, previously with other people, you know, feel free to call me. If you want to talk about the business, if I can give you any guidance in any way, shape or form, uh, even if you just want to hear it and ignore it, you know, feel free to give me a call. So I, I kind of, I like the kid. What were these promos? You know, what, you know, here's what, here's what I liked about him not to make this the Brian Pillman jr. Show, but I liked him because he knew, he knew, and he, he asked, I asked him, I said, what are you doing here? Are you working the, the show? And he said, no, I was hoping maybe I could get behind the scenes and help with production or, or just, you know, be behind the scenes. He goes, but this is what he said that impressed me so much. He said, I know I'm not ready yet for a show like this. I'm still green and I've got a lot to learn. I was just hoping to get behind the scenes to help. That's the kind of attitude as a promoter or a producer or just an old guy that's been around the business for a while. That's the kind of shit you love to hear. All right. Here we are. Pasta mania. I'm getting hungry just looking at this. Look at that. Look at that menu. You got Hulk Hogan in his yellow T-shirt. He's got his chef's hat. You got kids. There, of course, Jimmy Hart. There's a red light. There's a camera. There's Jimmy Hart. You're never going to get away from Jimmy Hart. I don't care who you are, what you do. If Hulk Hogan's in the same freaking zip code as you, Jimmy Hart is going to find that red light and get on camera. But all of these people are just so excited. Pasta mania, brother. It's running wild. We got meatballs galore. We're going to have, oh, my God, a 30-man macaroni battle royale. This is just great i'm getting all excited conrad i can't believe i have this much energy yeah it, it is amazing and what's fun to me is uh that you guys really thought this was a good idea no wait <laughs> yeah. who, who said we did who said i thought it was a good idea well you put it on tv well, i put it on tv because well, sure we put a lot of stuff on tv that you promote it wasn't our business this was a deal that hulk hogan did and he really it wasn't even his business he licensed his name to a young man by the name of Johnny Caffarella. Have you ever met Johnny? No. Johnny has got some, a um, little bit of connective tissue to the original glow, believe it or not. Oh, okay. And Johnny Caffarella's father was a major executive at General Foods, which is based in Minneapolis. In fact, Johnny Caffarella's father was the guy who originally designed and, and built and promoted all of the Olive Garden restaurants. So through Johnny's relationships with his father and General Mills, that became a licensing opportunity for Hulk uh, along with, uh, and it was Johnny's business. It wasn't General Mills. I don't want to apply that. But he was getting, Johnny was getting a lot of guidance from his dad. So there you go. A little bit of tidbit, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of fact you can rest your laurels on. So uh, you pick your pasta, pick your sauce, and then you can have added attractions like chicken, veggies, or a meatball. Yeah, the little pasta maniacs—they could—they uh, could enjoy Hulkaroos and Hulkaroni and cheese. Hulkaroni and cheese. Can you believe that's I real? I love that. 
macaroni and cheese. I can't. I can't understand why it didn't really. I mean, it could have been the next macaroni grill. How about uh, Ric Flair here in one of his very best robes, strutting out? You guys were putting out have, all the do, stuff. Do you have this robe? Do you have I, this in your? I collection? did. I did. This was my first Ric Flair robe. I do not anymore, though. What'd you do? Did you trade it off for a Ferrari or what? A um, a collector came calling with uh, a pile of cash that was three times what I paid for it, and I said, "Roll Tide." Good for you. So, and look at Stinger. Stinger's coming out in a lavender and gold and purple. I mean, it's just glitter mania. I mean, between him and Flair, my God. Oh, by the way, I I forgot to tell you this, that belt that the referee is holding right there, the United States championship. Mm -hmm. I purchased it last week. Did you really? You're not going to believe where it wound up. I'll tell you off air and you'll laugh out loud. Probably shouldn't out it right here. And look at this. It's the big moment of the night. Ric Flair is about to go toe to toe with Stinger for the United States championship, but that's not what's really going on. Lex Luger's here. Lex Luger walks out. For those of you not watching along on the WWE network, which is, by the way, this is a lot of fun. So if you get a chance to do it, actually re-listen to the show with us because it's, it's fun this way. But, um, this is where, I mean, I put a lot of, look, I had a lot riding on this. I didn't really want to sign Lex Luger sting actually convinced me to do it. I wasn't really sure how it was going to work out, but I knew one thing and that's that WWE thought he was under contract. The audience thought he was under contract and I knew at least for a night, Having Lex Luger show up on Nitro was going to be a big damn deal, but we had to work really hard to keep it quiet because the dirt sheets, your buddy Dave Meltzer and all of his little stooges and rats, you know, where they were all over the place. And the minute you tried to surprise anybody with anything, you know, it'd be all over the internet or all over the dirt sheets or whatever uh, it was at that time. And we really wanted to make it work. So Lex flew himself to Minneapolis. Uh, put himself up in a separate hotel, and we didn't bring him over to the building till right before that appearance. In hindsight, you know, you've told the story before, and I'm sure you will again in more detail. You were a little reluctant to proceed with, with him. In hindsight, was it the right move? Absolutely the right move. You know, if I've ever, if I've ever taken a chance on anybody or anything that, probably paid off, you know, and got a return on the investment as quickly and as substantially, uh, as Lex Luger did. I can't, I can't think of it. I mean, he really did. He overdelivered. He said he would do everything he, could, he, he, he would do. He was easier to work with than almost anybody on the roster. He really worked hard at it because Lex at that time, and, and, and Lex is a different person now. I don't know if you got a chance to see him over the weekend. He's a much, much different man. Um, he, he's found peace. He's found religion. He's happier now with himself. I think than he's ever been at any time in his life, but back then he was an arrogant prick and he was tough to deal with. And he kind of knew that he didn't want to be that way. It's just, that's the way he came off. It wasn't like he walked around with a chip on his shoulder, trying to piss people off. He wasn't like that. But he was aloof. He was standoffish. And he looked the way he looked. And he he didn't spend a lot of time communicating with people that he wasn't really close to. And that generally comes off as arrogant and, and, and unfriendly. That was his rap. 
and he knew it and he worked really hard to overcome that. And he did. It, it, it only took me a couple months before I realized that Steve was right. Sting was right in that bringing him, bringing him in, not just because of this moment, because this moment to, you know, to Lux Luger's credit and to Steve's and to mine to a degree, we put a lot into this. And that moment when Lex Luger just a few minutes ago walked out in the middle of this match, that set the tone for Nitro. You hear people talk all the time about, you know, they drop buzzwords like they know what the frick they're talking about when it comes to television. You know, must-see TV and water cooler talk and that kind of thing. But when when we brought Lex out there, and it was by design, again, based on the research. I'm going to finish my point a little while ago. Brad Siegel really emphasized the need to do a lot of focus groups and research and find out what the hell the audience really wanted. Not just talking in our own little WCW echo chamber and, you know, interviewing WCW fans because that only gives you a small glimpse of the world. But we we did focus groups in major cities around the United States. We did, I don't know how many of them, maybe eight or ten of them. And one of the consistent themes that we kept hearing out of each one of those focus groups is that wrestlers wanted, or wrestling fans wanted to see the unexpected. They wanted to be surprised. And we knew that Lux coming in would be a huge surprise. It certainly was to Pat Patterson and, and Vince McMahon and Bruce Pritchard over in WWF. We've heard their side of the story. It's pretty funny. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Yeah, no doubt about it. They were not sad to see him go. Let's talk about the, uh, the logistics of shooting inside the mall of America. How many site preps did you guys make here before you sort of figured out how you were going to do it? Oh, uh, probably one. I wasn't there for it. That would have been David Crockett and his team. Uh, David would have probably gone in with three or four other people along with Craig Leathers, uh, and his team. And I'm pretty sure they were able to figure it out with one visit. It's amazing when you look at this and you see, as we saw the WCW logos just spinning around on the roof and, or the ceiling rather. And then you've got these, you know, cameras all over in the different levels. And it really is a, a unique challenge compared to your typical arena. 
It is, and it was a unique presentation. I know I've, you know, people are probably sick of hearing me say this stuff, and I'm, I get sick of hearing myself, believe it or not. But again, in as in, in walks Aaron Anderson, um, when Ted mandated that we launch Nitro on TNT again, that was his idea, not my idea. I just had to execute it. I knew that we were really up against a lot. The WWF was number one by about 300 light years. We were a, a distant, almost non-existent number two in terms of the wrestling audience, you know, the wrestling fans. And I knew, and this was intuitively, you know, this is just instinct, common sense for me. I knew that if I tried to go out and copy or replicate or do something similar to the WWE, I'd get crucified. So I, one of the first things I knew right off the bat is I had to be as different from the WWE as I could be. And everything that you see about Nitro from this night on, September 4th, 1995, almost 23 years ago to the night, everything that we did with Nitro started out with the premise of how can it be different than what we see on WWE. And some of it is obviously the same. It's wrestling. We didn't want to try to change the nature of the product, but we definitely wanted to find every possible opportunity to change the way we presented the product. And I think this is for for a kickoff show. I think you know we knocked this out of the park. If I, I do see so. Yeah, no, I don't think anybody. No, I'm going to put I'm going to put myself over in any given opportunity. Well, I appreciate that. At least you can be honest. By the way, um, Meltzer put it over pretty strong too. Uh, the opening match here got three and a half stars. The one we're watching right now is going to get a three and a quarter star rating. So Meltzer's pretty high on it. And I guess we should briefly touch on when this all sort of was created with an idea. Allegedly, this was reported in the observer on June 12th. You met with Ted Turner on June 5th in Atlanta. And we sort of know what that meeting was about now in hindsight. You've told the story a lot. But he says that you're going to go head to head and Meltzer speculates that the start date will be August 7th. And he even kicks around that there's been reports of maybe the name should be head to head. Chat me up. Was any other name considered before you guys landed on Monday Nitro? God, I was so hoping I would get a chance to see Meltzer, but... He was hiding in about every corner he could find to hide this past weekend. Um, head to head. I, this is the first time I've heard that. I mean, it's so stupid. Again, that's an example of the silly shit that he just made up. He just made it up. Nobody talked about head to head. That's stupid. It was going to be nitro from the get-go. And the reason I say that, and it wasn't my idea, by the way, so I'm not trying to put myself over, but the reason there was no discussion, no debate, or no second choice was because TNT had a, a movie franchise called Nitro. And it was all their action films at that time. And it was a TNT-branded franchise. And Brad felt strongly that since wrestling is, wrestling is action – he wanted to brand it consistent with his um, his um, Nitro movie franchise. And it was his network, not mine. So even if I wanted to call it, you know, Eric Bischoff shit show, I wouldn't have been able to or anything else. That was Brad's choice, and it was a choice from day one. It wasn't up for a vote. 
and nobody in my office ever breathed head to head. There you go. Now you know. Chat me up about um, August seventh. Um, wh- when did when and why was this the right day to debut it? I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a booker and I'm not, I don't know shit about wrestling. I would think, you know what? The right time to bring this out is when there's no competition. Let's get no, and that's exactly. What, I mean, again, that was too. I mean, see, there you are, a booker. You say you're not a promoter. You say you're not a booker, but here you are, sounding like a promoter and sounding like a booker. I think you're underestimating yourself, Mister Thompson. I think there's another career in your future, and I can't wait for Starcast Two next year, over Labor Day. You and I need to talk about what city you're going to do that in. But yeah. There's- <laughs> <laughs> but it was always intended to be um, September 4th because we knew well in advance, months in advance, that WWE was going to be off the air because of the Westminster Dog Show or whatever it was. And the, the whole idea for the first few months, we knew at the very best what we could hope for was to convince people to sample our product. We knew we weren't going to win them over overnight. We thought it was going to take a year, 18 months before we got any kind of traction whatsoever. But we knew that if there was any chance in the world to get everybody's attention and get the biggest bang out of our marketing budget and TNT's marketing budget, that it had to be on a night when we were unopposed. So why Dave, you know suggested that we were going to do it on August 7th. I have no idea. I'm just like the rest of the silly shit that he comes up with. I think he just makes it up because he, he's trying to hit a maximum word quota so we can brag about having 10,000 words in every page, every newsletter or something. But it, none of that is true. I've never heard of it before. One of the other things that was reported in the Observer is that you guys gave a tryout to Nancy Sullivan as an announcer. Do you remember Nancy trying out? God, I don't Now She might've tried out with somebody else, but I don't remember sitting. I've, I've, when I say I don't remember, it's because it didn't happen with me. It may have, she may have gotten a chance to kind of sit down and do some play by play in color with somebody else in production to give it a whirl, but, um, n- nothing that I was involved with. It was suggested that, um, maybe this first show would have wound up in Miami and the night center. But it, of course, we know it wound up here at the Mall of America. How many other I believe, we, I believe we went to Miami the following week, didn't we? Yes. I think we did, yeah. But when you know that you know you need a cool venue, you've got to have somewhere to sort of kick it off, what else was considered before you ultimately sat down and said, we're doing it at the Mall of America? There really were no other options. I mean, the Mall of America came together pretty quickly. I, I, you know, I lived in Minneapolis. My parents lived there at this time. My brother and sister lived there at this time. I would go up every fall and hunt and fish up in Minnesota. And clearly, I was very familiar with this. I know Dave Meltzer likes to take a lot of credit for it. Um, at least that's what I've heard. He had nothing to do with it. Um, I was intimately familiar with the mall of America because I, I had lived there actually when they started building it and all of the, the controversy. And there was a ton of it about it. Um, cause they had to tear the old, uh, stadium down the old Met center had to get torn down in order to do it. And there was a lot of fallout. It was, you know, 
it was it was a controversial deal. So when it opened, like you know, so many other people, I, I was there opening weekend and checked it out, and and I was familiar with this atrium. Um, so when I talked to David Crockett and Craig Leathers about it, and a few of the other people, and they they went up to see it. Uh, while they were looking at it and scoping it, I had already started talking to management. And that came together so quickly and so easily that there was really no need to look at other options. Right. So when you actually uh, put this deal together, there's no consideration for we're necessarily trying to sell tickets or a television product. And you can tell that we're sort of... um, I don't know, working out the kinks as we're watching this promo here with Rotundo, you see on the far right of your screen where they're still adjusting the cameras on the right. This had to be frustrating, but expected for the first shot, right? It was, I don't want to say it was expected, but believe it or not, this kind of thing didn't bother me that much. And I know that's going to sound really weird, and people will jump to the conclusion that Bischoff just didn't care and he was sloppy and he didn't know what he was doing. But there's a reason why I was so adamant about going live. Ted Turner was adamant about going head-to-head. Going live was my choice. He didn't He didn't care whether we went live or, or tape. I knew, again, going back to that we had to be different, and, and knowing that we had to be able to surprise the audience because research told us that's what they wanted us to do. I knew that the only way we could do that consistently is to go live. And what the way I looked at live, and this is going to sound horrible, I guess, but when we were discussing it, because it wasn't a popular choice, by the way, internally at WCW, there were a lot of people that were kind of like, oh, man, live every week. It was daunting for a lot of people. But I explained that it didn't have to be overproduced. It didn't have to look like the WWE product. In fact, I didn't want it to. Now, I didn't want people to go out there and pretend that they were making little mistakes and glitches and having shit fall into the frame and made it look like an accident. But I also knew that you know anything can happen when it's live. And that was another theme that we kept hearing when we did our research. People like the sense that when you watch wrestling, anything can happen. So for me, when I'd see little glitches, kerfuffles, production, you know, mistakes, it's live. It happens. And the audience, they don't sit back and say, oh, wow, I'm really watching TV because that wasn't supposed to happen. But over time, your audience is conditioned to believe they're watching a real live event as opposed to a slick produced piece of business and the audience almost will always favor live which is why the wwe followed suit they 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 started doing their show live as well for many of the same reasons and are still doing it live to this day it's just a better format but when you're live shit happens but it's okay you know a little camera glitch in a corner it's okay you know light blows up <laughs> we're doing an interview in the dark it's okay no one's going to die it just adds a realistic a, a sense of realism to it let me ask this why was uh bubba uh, the big boss man here ray trailer why was he the right opponent for hulk hogan on the first nitro uh you know a lot of hulk's opponents were people that he'd worked with in the past and he felt comfortable with that that's a that was a big part of it um 
he, he didn't want to go out there and experiment on national television. Hulk was very self-aware of what he was capable of and what he wasn't capable of in the style of match that he was most comfortable doing in his judgment, the style of a match that his fans uh, were mo- most interested in seeing. So there was a you know a handful of guys that he immediately felt comfortable with, and Bubba was one of them. He's a big guy that can move. He could bump. And Hulk knew that he could trust him. He'd be where he needed to be when he needed him to be there. And he'd sell for him. A couple of guys who apparently didn't think they could trust WCW were Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Because on August 8th, Terry Taylor takes to the the hotline and just buries the shit out of those guys and Al Snow, who apparently had all been on his radar and someone he was trying to sign. But for whatever reason, they couldn't work a deal out. But then, of course, as we know, that quickly changes. And it looks like WCW is going to be bringing in Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, and Eddie Guerrero. But interestingly enough, Sabu. And you've been on record as saying that ACW sucks and you hated ACW and everything about it. Whoa, 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 whoa. How the phone? How the phone? I never said it sucked. I never said it sucked. You're putting words in my mouth. You're going all Dave Meltz around me here. I've gone on record when I've been challenged about, and when people have asked me in, in, in a non-challenging way, you know, why I tried to steal all of their talent. That's bullshit. And I'll call that out. But I never said the product sucked. Why? Wow. I, 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 I've definitely, you know, contextualized their value in, in terms of a television property, especially in 95, 96, and 97, when only a handful of people watched it in small markets and large in the middle of the night, you know, as an infomercial at three o'clock in the morning. And, and when people try to compare and they put ECW in its significance of ECW in the context of the Monday Night Wars with WWF at the time and WCW, I'll call bullshit on that. But I've never said the product sucked. I think what what what, what Paul Heyman did was amazing. The, the, the amount of passion that still exists, not only with former fans, but with some of the talent like Taz and Bully and Tommy Dreamer. There's still a camaraderie there that's, you know, that's lightning in the bottle. You can only capture that once. But – on, on a scale of one to 10 of if WCW and WWE were, you know, number nine and number 10 in the Monday night wars during this period of time, ECW was a, a, a pimple on a hamster's ass in terms of its, its influence at this time. Well, of course, seeing all these guys leaving, um, Paul Heyman can't help himself. And he addresses the fans in the ECW arena on August 26th. And does like a half an hour speech declaring war on WCW and getting fans to, uh, chant ECW and fuck you at Eric Bischoff. No, but that's smart. Now, sure. again, Paul Heyman did the same thing that later on Vince McMahon did. They're trying to put me out of business. Bischoff is trying to steal all my talent. You know, all their, the billions of dollars of Ted Turner, blah, 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 fucking blah. None of it was true. Just like, I mean, Vince McMahon did the same thing and it wasn't true, but it was a way for, for Paul and I admire him for it. I'm not, I mean, I, I think it was genius of him. It was a way for Paul to rally his troops, to galvanize, you know, the locker room, 
to galvanize the audience, to, to, to create a loyalty, which was so important. And again, genius on Paul's part. Um, that's why he did it, but it wasn't true. <laughs> Got to keep going back to that part. It really wasn't true, but unfortunately, and you weren't at the panel I did with R.D. Reynolds. Oh, what a piece of work he was. Um, but there were some, you know, former ECW loyalists, you know, in that crowd. And they just, you know, they react so, you know, violently when you bring out facts, you know, when, when you talk about the fact that they didn't, you know, ECW was non-existent in the Monday Night Wars because they didn't get network television until 1999. The war was over by the time they got to TNN. And up until that point, nobody really watched him, relatively speaking, contextually. <laughs> but, man, he did a great job doing that. Hats off to him. But it has nothing to do with the facts or the truth. Talk to me about Vader, because this is around the same time, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in long form, that Vader had his incident with Paul Orndorff. But it was reported that he was supposed to be a big part of these first nitros and maybe have some sort of involvement at the end of this Hogan match. And that would set up a match for the following week. But after the whole situation in the locker room, there's some disciplinary action and that's probably the end of Vader. Chat me up. What were the plans before that happened? Uh, the, he was, he was going to be, uh, heavily involved. He, he, in fact, he might have been originally planned to be in this match. Um, and I'm going to be careful here because I have a rule about people that aren't around to defend themselves. I don't speak ill of, of those people in the business who have passed away, whether under any circumstances, I don't do it. All I'll say is uh, Vader was here. He was in Minneapolis. I saw him at the hotel. I talked to him briefly. But I had already made up my mind um, that uh, he wasn't going to be a part of the roster for, for much longer. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Well, what we do know is that, uh, Hogan is going to be a part for a long, long time as he's dropping the big boot here. And you know what that means? Boom. Hogan gets the win. Jimmy Hart's a happy man. He's going to possibility, baby. I can't even make my high, my voice go as high as his. I, I don't understand how a 73 year old man can still squeak like that. Literally. You heard him lately? Oh yeah. He was down here in Huntsville, Alabama telling fans a few weeks ago, all about Jimmy Hart's famous bar and tiki deck right there on the beach at the Mayan Inn. They've got the NFL Sunday ticket, uh, but you can't have glass on the beach. They got cans, but you can come on down and enjoy some of their specials. And as always, they got beans and taters and look at this shit. Here comes the dungeon of doom. Chris, the fucking barber beefcake, Kamala, Kevin Sullivan. My gosh. This you is... know what the highlight of my trip was this weekend? Can I guess? Yeah, guess. Uh, at the roast when everyone took turns brutalizing Brutus. No, but that was bad, wasn't it? I mean, come on. I mean, I, I that was. Uh, 
anyway, but no, it was, it was hanging out with Kevin Sullivan. Oh, such a great guy. I had, I almost got teary eyed. He saw me and I hadn't seen him in 20 years, maybe longer. I don't know. It was probably 18 years, 19 years. And, you know, I walked into, to the panel and JJ Dillon didn't show up by the way. That, that was, that was disappointing. I was hoping he was going to be there. I was going to have some fun with JJ. I was going to talk about how he, you know, how, how he used WCW, uh, FedEx charges and postal materials to buy and sell baseball cards and shit, but he wasn't there. So I didn't get a chance to do that. Um, but seeing Kevin there, you know, he, he, we, he, we, uh, we saw each other from about 40 feet away and he, he right away, he grabbed me, and he, you know, I can't do a good Kevin Sullivan impersonation, but he said, can, can, can I see you outside? I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. He was really adamant about, and it was raining out, you know, and he just, he didn't want anybody around to hear what he had to say. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> here we go. This is going to be fun. And he, he says some very, very kind things and. And I, I almost hated this, almost hated the leave because I, I had such a good time with him. Um, it's really great, really great. So think, thank you for that. I think he's a guy who gets a bad rap. Every interaction with him, I've learned something new. He's very genuine. You know, I just, uh, I'm a big Kevin Sullivan fan. As am I. And you know what? Here's, here's one of the things I learned this weekend. And this is me. You know, this is my flaw as a human being. You know, that time in 2018, or excuse me, uh, 1999, 1998, 1999, it was such a horrible time. And there was a lot of betrayal going on. You know, when, when, when I got to WCW, it was a very hyper-political environment. I mean, it was just a shark tank because everybody knew that whoever ends up in the chair, meaning running the company, is only going to probably last six months or a year. So it was a constant turnover and everybody was kind of jockeying to be in position, you know, to get that next shot, thinking that they could possibly figure out a way to pull it off. And, and, and that was consistent, you know, now by 1995, 96, 97, early part of 98, that kind of all died down for the most part. There was still a little bit of that. There always is in any big company where there's a lot of money to be made. But by the end of 98 and in, well into 99, it was hyper, hyper political. It was just a shark tank and there was chum in the water. Sharks were just taking a chunk out of anything they could get close to. And I, I just assumed that Kevin was one of the guys that – I don't want to say betrayed me because he wasn't in a position to. But I'm a big – I believe in loyalty. I believe if – you know, if you say someone's your friend and you, you go out on a limb for somebody and they, you believe, or they tell you that they've got your back, you know, I, I, I take that shit really, really seriously. And it's a, it's a flaw that I have. It's, it usually comes back to bite me in the ass, but I'm not going to change the way I am at this stage of my life. And I, I was disappointed in Kevin and, and in fairness to Kevin, I didn't even know why. So I didn't, I didn't have anything I could hang on my hat on. But just, you know, for me, when I was on the receiving end of so much crap, I just kind of looked at everybody and went, you're all a bunch of sharks, you know, and Kevin wasn't one of them. You know, I, I know that he wasn't. And it was just so good to reconnect with him. Not, you know, this isn't like Dr. Phil here, and I don't mean to make it, but it, I'm just telling you personally how great it was to be on a panel with him. 
Absolutely. And here we're finishing Nitro with a big pull apart, setting up the next week. Hulk Hogan, Lex Luger going nose to nose, swatting fingers out of each other's faces. And we've got quite a cliffhanger for the next week. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Now, here's another thing that that really, and there were several things that really came out of research that to me were like glaring. They were like fluorescent blinking lights, like got to do it, got to do it, got to do it. We did, when we, we do these focus groups, we would put up an entire show. We take the commercials out of the show and we'd have the focus group watch the show and they'd have these little dials. They just call them dial tests or dial me- or meter tests. And they'd have these little gimmicks about the size of a cell phone, I guess, a bigger one. And it had a little dial on it and they would be instructed that when you see something that you see, and you, there may be 25 or 35 people in a room that all have one of these little people meters or dial test meters. And each one of them would get it and they would be instructed that when you see something you like, turn it to the right. If you really like it, turn it all the way to the right. If you see something you don't like, turn it to the left. If you really hate it, turn it all the way to the left. And all of these um, dial test meters were wired in through a computer, so they kind of averaged out. And we would sit in a room. They didn't even know we were there. We were, whoops, turn that off, you idiot. They, um, they, meaning the people that were conducting the research, we weren't doing it internally. We hired a company to do it that was a professional research company for broadcasting. Anyway, they, we, we would sit back behind a, a one-way mirror, and we would watch them watch the show. And that's where a lot of the elements that I believed in so much, it's not because I was so smart and I had this you know, great instinct and I was a genius. It's because we did enough research and the audience tells you what they want to hear or what they want to see. And you either are smart enough to listen or you're, you're not. And a couple things that stood out consistently in every city, we did them in Philadelphia, we did them in New York, we did them in Chicago, we did them in Detroit, we did them on the West Coast. We wanted to have a good geographical kind of cross section of the country. But one of the things that stood out is that people love the pull-aparts. They love those moments when two guys would square off right before, they almost love the anticipation of a, of a, of a fight or violence, then they enjoyed the violence itself. And it kind of crystallized in my mind. That's why we put the emphasis on um, the, the endings, the way we structured them. That's why I tried to keep contact between two people that were going into a pay-per-view, at least as best I could. And I, I wasn't very good at staying consistent with it, but I tried. Um, I never wanted to see people touch until they got into the pay-per-view. And I, I, in my mind, when I was watching this research and hearing people talk about it, the audience, it occurred to me that the, a really good analogy is like in every Western you see, probably still to this day, you have that one moment where the two gunslingers meet out in the street. And, you know, it's always a dramatic moment. And, you know, you, the camera cuts from their eyes to their hands twitching and, you know, a fly landing on their lip, whatever it is. All of those things are designed to build anticipation. In those moments, like we just saw, where the guy's in the ring and it looks like it's going to explode, those moments just blew everything else that people were watching out of the water in terms of the dial tests. They didn't want to see the fight. They want to see the anticipation and the lead up to it. So there you go. 
I do want to mention very briefly before we wrap this one up that besides trying to sign new talent to cold Scorpio, Sabu, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero. One of the things that suggested was that maybe you guys could take three hours every Monday and just do one that was live. And then ultimately it goes live and every episode is going to be live. But as a result, Apparently WCW was only going to receive $38,000 per week from the TNT network, which was far less than what the production costs would be, which would exceed a hundred thousand dollars. So in other words, even though it's a great opportunity, it's prime time, it's on TNT, the shows are going to start off as a money loser, right? Yeah. I'm a little confused by those numbers you were throwing around trying to figure out where the hell they came from, but, um, the observer, yeah. so they may be make believe, but or just again, I'm, I I made a commitment to myself not to try to just kick Dave Belzer in the balls every time I had an opportunity, and it's hard not to because there are so many opportunities. But you know, there was a lot of stooges and clowns, rats feeding him things just because they knew he'd print it. I think they got their, they got kicks out. I mean, none of that, none, nothing that you talked about with regards to finance was true. I had never heard it before. So I'm sitting here trying to digest it and going, wait, wait a minute. Is part of that true? Might I have just forgotten that? No, it's just not true. (laughs) It's that simple. But that being said, the last part of your, your, your comment or question was, you know, was it starting out to be a money loser? Of course. It was costing us a ton of money to do it, and we weren't getting any revenue for it. We, we were getting a percentage of the ad sales that we generated, but in the beginning, this show did not generate ad sales. Wrestling was really hard to sell, and WCW wrestling was way harder to sell than WWE. We didn't have a reputation with national advertisers. I've talked that to death. I won't bore people with it anymore. But for WCW to try to sell ads in 1995 was just – it was almost impossible. That changed, 96, 97, 97 in particular, um, and even in the first part of 98. That all changed, but it took a while to get there. So, yeah, we were losing money. But but that was this – again, this wasn't our choice. I didn't go to Ted Turner and ask him to do it. it quite, quite the contrary. Nobody really wanted to. We were all scared to death. We, we all knew that we were biting off more than we were capable of chewing, you know, logistically – Financially, um, creatively, it was it was intimidating. It wasn't a choice. It was an order. Um, and we just knew we, the only thing we could do is do it the best we could. <laughs> that, that was the only choice we had. Well, so there you go. We hope everybody enjoyed a peek behind the curtain at the very first Monday Nitro. I'm sure we're going to uh, be able to delve into more of this. And all the little moving parts with the Vader story and trying to sign Sabu and the way Eddie and Dean and all those guys came in. But it is sort of a fun little popcorn match to watch, man. You've got 45 minutes of a show here that you should go back and relive with us because really the impact of Nitro is still felt today. Wouldn't you agree, Eric? No, I would. And I I think, you know, of, of course, when I go to like your convention, Starcast, Naturally, people that recognize me are going to tell me what they either what they think I want to hear to make me feel good, which I <laughs> don't don't get me wrong, I appreciate that. But 
you know, they see me and what do they think of? They think of Nitro. So what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about their memories. And I had so many people this weekend um, tell me, you know, and this is consistent everywhere I go when I go to conventions and things like this. Is you know, So many people thank me, you know, for providing so much entertainment during their teens or their childhood or, their, you know, early 20s while they're in college. Because Nitro and the Monday Night Wars changed the way people felt about wrestling. It was a very important time. The Monday Night Wars time, both on, on the WCW side and the WWE side equally, um, really changed everything. And it's important. And I think if you're a wrestling fan or a historian or you're just fascinated by the evolution of this thing called professional wrestling that's been around since the beginning of television time, you know, you owe it to yourself to, to take a look at this and hopefully listen to our podcast because it, the insight – you know, the little nooks and crannies and the nuances of what went on, went, went on in trying to pull the show off, I think are still fascinating. And this was the beginning of it. We all know how it ended. You know, we all know what we see now on Monday nights and Tuesday nights. And coming up pretty soon, we're going to be watching SmackDown on Fox on Friday nights, I guess. You know, that's where we are now. But this is where it started. You know, shortly after Nitro launched, WWE kicked it into after Afterburner and... You know, they ended up eventually you know, outperforming. Uh, we out, we we eventually outperformed them, and then they they got tired of that, and they hit the afterburners, and they outperformed us, and now we know where they are today. But this this was the shot. This was the first shot across the bow that changed the world as we know it. If we're wrestling fans today and we're watching it, this was the first shot that changed it all. So I think it's kind of cool. Well, we think it's cool too, man, and we appreciate you taking a stroll down memory lane, and it's kind of cool. So we were able to sort of get the bookends here together. We did the last nitro and now we've done the first nitro and we really hope that everybody dug it. He is at E Bischoff on Twitter. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.